All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. Today, we've got Alex, who helps anyone negotiate better and feel more confident doing it. She is a clinical professor of law and director of the Mediation Clinic at Columbia Law School. Her first book, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything, was published May 5th by Simon & Schuster and became an instant Wall Street Journal bestseller. The first negotiation book, solo authored by a woman to make that list. Congrats, virtual high fives. She lives in Maplewood, New Jersey with her husband and daughter, and in her spare time, she enjoys cooking and practicing yoga. Alex, welcome to the show. Mark, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I mean, anyone that has a book asking for more and with a subtitle of 10 questions to negotiate anything, being a question curator and connoisseur, I mean, this gets me excited. So (laughs) I'm excited to jump in. But before we do, before we get into your work, your backstory, everyone gets this question. It's to avoid job titles. And that's just, who are you? You know, who are you today? What defines the Alex in, in, in front of this screen? So interesting, Mark. I'm a coach, to be honest, is really how I see myself. You know, when I think back to, sometimes you can look back to early on in life and you can see the seeds of what brings you joy, what brings you energy and where you want to spend your time. And I remember in high school, I joined the speech and debate team and I, I loved it. I just, I love language. I'm somebody who's endlessly fascinated by the words we use to get through to people and the words that we can use to to move people and move change. But as as exciting and as fulfilling as that was, crafting my own speeches and work and delivering those, the moment that I was most excited about in high school was taking a friend of mine who had pretty serious social anxiety and anxiety about speaking in front of people. And she looked at me one day and said, I wish I could do what you do. And I said, you can. Mm. And coaching her and then watching her place in the top 10 in some gigantic meet and this look on her face when the light went on and you could see her opinion of herself transform. I just thought I'm addicted to this. It's better than me winning myself. And I want to find a place in life where I can coach people and, and see them the best of who they are and help them to see it for themselves. So fascinating. Makes so much sense just knowing your, you know, a good portion of your story. Uh, but I didn't know that aspect or where that, where that passion came from. I'd love to talk about the story to Columbia because it almost didn't happen. If, yeah. you, if you don't mind sharing that story and really any of the questions that helped you go for it. Yes. So, so the story is I graduated from Columbia. I took the course that I'm now teaching and my professor stayed in touch with me. And it was so curious. I was out practicing as a lawyer and every few months, this professor would say, let's grab breakfast. And we'd go to this place on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. 
And she would just ask me questions, Mark, questions about how I was enjoying my work and what I was loving and how my life was. And one day at the end of one of these breakfasts, she said to me, have you ever thought about teaching? Because I think you'd be really great. And my response was, you know, I've also thought about winning the lottery, but not seriously, I guess, because law teaching is really hard. And she encouraged me to apply, but that I would have to, I would have to interview my way into the position because she couldn't make that decision. Yeah. And I almost didn't apply because I didn't meet a hundred percent of the requirements, but there was a question that I asked myself because I thought, oh gosh, this is a risk. And then I asked myself, what am I risking? Mm, So good. Right? You know, and this is a question that I ask people a lot because when they tell me, oh, this is a risk, you know, I'm about to go out and try to sell my book or I'm trying to get this job. And I ask them, what are you risking? Because if you're risking, I work with the UN sometimes, if you're risking human life, sure, let's take a pause. Let's talk about what's going to be the (laughs) best course of action, right? But if you're risking, I might not succeed. People might not like me. Then I'm going to tell you to go for it every single time. And so that was the question that enabled me to get over the hump, put in my application. I And I thought to myself, I'm not going to say no, let them say no. But they didn't, right? And I operated from my strengths. And now here I am 14 years later in my dream job because I took that quote unquote risk to apply. Well, and ultimately, like the ultimate coach. It's like that, that whole, I mean, you know, guiding, coaching, teaching students. I mean, that couldn't be any closer to (laughs) probably that earlier, earlier days of, of coaching your friend, right? It really couldn't be any closer. And so, so interesting that when you pay attention to your joy, it really contains powerful clues as to your highest and best and what you might be put on this earth to do. Sure. And negotiation, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, we're always negotiating something, usually uh, in, in, in the outside world. But I'm interested to hear your perspective on our internal negotiation. So I feel like that's where we're negotiating the most often, right from negotiating ourselves out of getting up in the morning and staying in the warm bed under the sheets, <laughs> knowing that, oh, you know what, maybe, you know, I had put my workout clothes out. I did everything to set myself up to go exercise or move in the morning. Like there's all these things that we can just in like microseconds negotiate ourselves out of doing, you know, what we, what we, we set an objective to do. So I'm just curious how you see that given your, your, you know, you're in this, this is your profession. Yeah. This is why I'm excited to talk to you because, you know, we align on this so much. I always tell people, you have to remember where the negotiation starts. It doesn't start when you sit down with somebody else. It starts at home with you and you are either your own greatest advocate or your own greatest adversary. Pick one, right? In any given situation, I'm either on my own side saying, I should go for it. I should apply. I can ask. I can do this thing for myself, with myself. And that's the first step. And so many of us, whether it's around physical fitness or mental fitness or our career fitness, 
count ourselves out before we even try. You know, this isn't something I've talked about a lot on podcasts, Mark, but when I grew up, I had really severe childhood asthma and mm. I would not infrequently go to the hospital and get admitted. And so some of my earlier memories are around me trying to play soccer in gym class. And for five minutes, the teacher saying, oh my God, you're actually pretty good. And then I would have an asthma attack and have to be carted uh, off the field. Yeah. And I remember in my teenage years and in college saying, I'm going to retrain my heart and lungs. And I really want to go out and do this. And it was a daily negotiation with myself. I would go out, I would run a block, have to use my inhaler, go home. Next day I'd run two. And I remember the day, Mark, that I left my New York City apartment and I was running the lower loop in Central Park. And I realized that I'd forgotten my inhaler and it was okay that I was out there running and it felt wow. like I was flying. And that was a moment when I realized I'd overcome this negotiation with myself, that even despite earlier fear and memories, I had gotten out there. And now working out and, and fitness is a really, really important part of my daily and weekly routine. And I would never have gotten there unless I overcame some of that, that mental struggle. Yeah. What, what do you think gave you the courage to even try to do that? Like, even when you, when you say you realized you forgot your inhaler on that lower loop, like the, I mean, a probably very close other outcome would have been a panic attack of, oh shit, like yeah. this was bad news type thing. But you, you obviously over, had overcome it, but you know, there was a lot of work and courage, I think, to even just take the steps saying, I'm going to do this and, and push myself to the point where you, you might end up in the hospital. Right. And, and this is something I talk about in Ask for More, too, is building from a prior success. It's asking yourself, how have I done something like this successfully before? Because yeah. oftentimes when we're doing something challenging, we forget that we've gone through many challenging times mm -hmm. before. And in that moment when I realized I don't have my inhaler in my right hand and I'm running through Central Park, I flashed back to all of the previous times that I had run that lower loop with the inhaler in my hand and I had not used it. And in that okay. moment, I realized it, the sensation I had was your training wheels are off now, right? You don't need yeah. this anymore. You've transcended it. And it was about quickly anchoring myself in my past success, which is a key that I use every day, even as I'm doing new things, Mark. You mm -hmm. know, I remind myself, maybe I haven't done exactly this, but I've done new stuff before and I've gotten through it so I can still do this. So it's so powerful because it's, I mean, you know, this, we, we often, we don't remember our, our, what we conquered in our successes or they're, they're the smaller memories, uh, if you will, but the ones that are always there, the one where we, where something went wrong or we had, you know, emotions of fear or stress or an anxiety. And, and, uh, I subscribe to this, this notion as well as those past successes call them actually uh, the practice experience stacking mm. and it's great. You know, you can just journal on and bring back those emotions that were linked to, you know, a situation where obviously in that moment felt like you wanted to 
run essentially, but for whatever reason you, you, you conquered it and then you can tap into those emotions and, and, uh, and then go forward. My Angelou did a lot of that as well. If, if you're, uh, if you're not familiar, you'll see that in that, in one, in her profile in my book. Um, I would love to find out from you then on, again, if that internal negotiation, like what can people, what can people try or do, or how can they approach, you know, just clearing out busy minds? Cause I feel like, you know, we're always, there's a lot of internal negotiation happening, but often we don't even know what's happening because our minds are full mm-hmm. and, you know, this is where the self-awareness comes in. And I, you know, I'd be curious to see what, uh, what's worked for you. And when, when working with your clients and your students to, to be able to see, right. And see the details internally with ourselves, but also if you're negotiating with someone else. Yeah, it's such a good question. And questions really are the answer when it comes to self-awareness. And maybe I could give a couple of pitfalls that I've seen people experience and and ways to get over them. One thing that really clouds self-awareness and makes people feel stuck and overwhelmed in this internal negotiation stage is that they're asking themselves a really unhelpful, in fact, pernicious question. And the question they're asking themselves is, why? Why haven't I been able to lose weight? Why is it so hard for me to go in and ask for a raise? And I want you to know that I never ask why in negotiation. I don't ask it with myself or I, you know, I try to pivot off it really quickly. We'll talk about that if I do, but I try never to ask myself and I never ask somebody else why, because why is a blame allocating question right? It keeps us stuck in the past instead of looking to the future and stuck in blame instead of looking to diagnosis. So I never ask myself anymore, why is this hard? Why haven't I done this? Instead, I ask myself, what? So if you're feeling down about the state of your fitness during the pandemic, instead of asking yourself, you know, why have I been doing this? Ask yourself, what support do I need? What's been happening for me? You know, what am I experiencing at this moment that's making things feel really challenging? And you can see just even in that subtle shift, you have moved from beating yourself down to a place of diagnosis where you say, maybe I need some help. And let me, you know, figure out what I can do to help myself. And Mm -hmm. so that's a major tweak that I use now. Anytime I find myself stuck in Y land, I immediately change courses and I say, all right, let's figure out what I need, what's happening, what's going on. And I, I wonder if that resonates for you as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Hello everyone. I first wanted to say thanks for being here and I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanted to let you know if you're interested, I just launched the Better Questions newsletter designed to provide you with a consistent 15-minute opportunity to pause and think because a pause leads to clarity and operating with intention where we all win and thrive. The newsletter is short, simple, and practical, providing you with three quality reflective prompts and mental fitness twice a month. But as always, I'll adjust the frequency based on your feedback. Never forget, at any point, 
you are always one question away from a completely different life or outcome. You can sign up over at BehindTheHuman.com, which will also give you a free preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. BehindTheHuman.com. Now back to the show. I mean, when in, in, in my story, when I had to delete this, this journaling app in our business that had just reached nearly 90 million people, I was asking all the why questions, right? The why questions and uh, the bad what ones. Like, what will my family think? What will mm. my, you know, all of the, basically all back to that blame game though. And and I remember getting stuck in like the, the why questions. And because I think there's, there's some value on asking why in terms of understanding, but we get stuck then in there. Then it just drives down. And it wasn't until wasn't until going back to the podcast really and and realizing that most of the guests that have been through big life pivots like this were asking progressive questions you know exactly what you just described so yeah i'm a i'm a big believer in in that and, and I, the thing i really like about how you described it, it's like we can remember that that's a quick that's a quick actionable shift from why to what it's not complicated. It's just, it's there. And then, you know, obviously take some time to slow down and really, you know, spend some time with those questions, but it's like, it's, it's practical. Yes. And, you know, you just made me think of the fact that this is a practice. Asking yes. yourself good questions is a practice in the same way that yoga for me is a practice. It's something that I have to come back to every day. I have to return to it it looks a little bit different in my body every day. And the same thing with asking yourself the right questions. That for me, I'm an expert. I've been doing this a long time. And guess what? I'm also a human being who yeah. experiences stress and bad nights of sleep and emotion. We can talk about that. And that can sometimes cloud my picture. And I find myself Oftentimes, Mark, this is how it feels. I don't realize I'm asking myself why until it shows up in my body. My body feels mm. bad. I feel tired. I feel down. And I'm not sure what's happening. And chances are it's because on some subconscious level, I'm asking myself a blaming question that then's showing up in my physicality. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so true. Well, a lot of this, uh, I mean, all of these principles, and again, like what I like uh, about your story and your work is just how practical uh, all of this this work is, and that's obviously how your book is set up as well. Um, but before we get into the book, speaking about you being human, the book almost didn't come to be. I mean, you're you were thinking, from my understanding, you were thinking about the book and writing the book in your mind for years and years, but like most humans on, on this planet, your mind was full. And, and it sounds like, you know, the book came out of uh, a forced kind of create space in the mind situation, right? So why don't you share the, the origin story of the book? Yeah, this is, it's so interesting. So at the beginning of 2018, I was taking my first ever sabbatical as a professor and we're supposed to take them every six to seven years. And for some reason, Mark, I thought I was going to be a hero and, and win <laughs> some kind of medal. 
for taking the longest to take my sabbatical. Okay. I'm still waiting for my cape, my medal, yeah. my certificates. Nobody ever gave that to me for failing to rest. But finally, I took this time and I can't believe I'm saying this, but fortuitously, I couldn't travel or do anything with that time because I had to have really serious foot surgery, like reconstructive oh, yeah. foot surgery. Yeah. And so instead of using my sabbatical to totally overwork myself in a glamorous way, to jet off to various locations to do speaking or whatever, I found myself in a rented hospital bed on the first floor of my home, 10 steps from the bathroom with my leg and a giant cast up in the air for six weeks. And I had been telling people for years, Mark, that I wanted to write a book, but I couldn't get out of the tyranny of the everyday. My yeah. mind was so full and it was full of other people, their priorities, their dreams, their thoughts on my future. And so lying in that hospital bed with no energy even to read a book. I mean, I just stared at the ceiling for six weeks and emptied my brain. And at the end of that six weeks, I sat up in bed one day, pulled out my laptop, and I wrote the outline for Ask for More in 45 minutes. Like wow. the outline. A yeah. couple of minor changes from that to publication, but that was the outline. And it was, it's a powerful example for me because I'm about to take my next sabbatical next year and I don't need foot surgery. And so I'm going <laughs> to yeah. have to simulate that, Mark, so that I rent that force my bed. I got to rent that damn thing again <laughs> because I need, I didn't realize how much rest, intentional, mm -hmm. full rest was like playtime for my brain and that yeah. I'd never had that space before. And doing that was what enabled me to take the single biggest leap of my career. And otherwise, if I had not had the foot surgery, I would have taken that sabbatical, worked all the way through, and I would not be speaking with you today. So fascinating. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, you would have done that and you know, it would have been things just compounding and stacking in your mind and so forth. But at that same time, I'm sure you would have had a lot of satisfaction with the speaking and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it would have been this like this beautiful experience, but you would, would have never known, yes. you know, you've, what this would feel like. I'm curious what the first two weeks felt like while you were in that bed and everything just stopped for you. Oh, what did it feel like? Well, it felt like a lot of pain. Um, yeah. I turns out that, you know, when your bones and muscle and fascia and all that have to heal, I was so tired. Um, mm, and there was okay. part of me that wondered a little bit, who am I if I'm not busy? You know, who am I if I'm not tethered to all of these appointments and these emails and I'm not out hustling every minute. Who am I? And I saw that, you know, person after person from my life came in to sit with me and bring me bagels or, you know, bring me mm -hmm. lunch or coffee. And we would have these really real conversations because I was in this bed and I couldn't go out and party with people. 
And it was kind of a lot of the modern world stripped away. And what was left was my relationships and the people who loved me. And I actually thought I would go crazy, that I couldn't do anything. And instead, it was wonderful, even through the pain, having that gift of really focusing on who I am without all the busyness and the important people in my life was something that I hope to experience again without the, you know, narcotics and the, (laughs) and the cast. Right. Yeah, sure. Well, that, that was the question I wanted to ask as a follow-up, you know, maybe not as a severe situation or as long as a, a big reset or pause, but like, what are some of the micro steps that you take kind of on a daily or weekly basis to keep your mind, you know, somewhat open and flowing and and closer to that state? Good question. So, all right, I guess I'll go ahead and admit this. This is not keeping my mind in a, in a positive state, in a state of flow is not always natural for me. I'm somebody who can very easily tend toward the anxious I can tend even toward a sense of shame. And I feel like earlier in my life, I thought that the only way to motivate myself was to wake up and say, I'm a failure, I'm behind, right? Mm. I'm a failure, I'm behind. And then I had to flog myself into (laughs) productivity and excellence. And I'll say that as I've gotten a little bit older and and have experienced more, I've realized that You can do so much more from a place of flexibility and self-love that flogging yourself only works for so long. And then eventually you hit a wall and it's really hard to serve people or to be the fullest version of yourself when you're constantly hitting that wall. And so for me, I actually surround myself with supports that equip me to rest, that remind me to rest. I get a lot of help both in my home and in my work uh, so that I can take intentional rest time. And so what that looks like is this morning, it's beautiful out today. I went outside for a walk. I find that for me, a walk in the sunshine produces really powerful mental effects. I think- right? Huge. I think really well when I do something that's repetitive motion. So when I was writing Ask for More, in fact, if I needed to work out a concept, I would walk while doing it. So people in my neighborhood got real familiar with seeing me kind of pacing around as I was working through stuff. (laughs) So that's chapter four there. (laughs) That's chapter four. And I'm telling you, I would walk and I would think And sometimes I would talk into something and do some notes and then I'd come back and it was written. So walking for me is a reset mentally and a reset emotionally. And so I find if I can do that, that equips me. Um, I am somebody who finds seated meditation a little bit challenging. I do work on it. But for me, yoga as a moving meditation is really incredible as a reset. So even if it's 20 minutes, it's a 20 minute walk, a 20 minute um, yoga session in my home, I find resets my brain and I'm ready to go back and work on some stuff that maybe was challenging for me before. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Thank you. I mean, this is why I asked this question. And it's not to be prescriptive with with practices because we're all different, but it's to give options. So, I mean, I I also resonate with the seated meditation as not something that necessarily works uh, super well for me, but breath work does. Mm. And, you know, so it's just to give, I think it's to give listeners ideas. And then all of a sudden like, oh yeah, I can do that. And especially with walks. I mean, I had to do that this morning. I woke up in full transparency. I woke up, the mind felt just heavy, full, a lot of decisions to make. And I just kind of wiped the, the original plan. I'm going for a long walk just to clear the mind. It's so powerful. And we all like, you don't need equipment for this, you know, and it, you can go right wherever you're at for the most part. And it's just, it's just, it's a, a super practice uh, from a mental and physical perspective that I think is underused. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'd love to know from a journaling or reflection standpoint, because I, I really do believe whether people are journaling pen to paper or apps or, or really any other medium, it's less about the vehicle, more about the practice, which is reflection. And we're, we're all thinking for the most part, it's just whether we're doing that intentionally or, or not. And questions obviously usually really help with that practice. I mean, you've left some incredible uh, questions already that I will definitely have in the show notes and in my own curated list of thousands of questions now. Um, but I'm just wondering if and, and feel free to re repeat the ones that you've had as well. But if there are any questions that you often come back to for either big decisions or on a frequent basis that you you notice yourself uh, recycling that are, are very valuable for yourself personally. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Okay. So there's a question that I use in Ask for More that I use for myself. And then there's one that I don't have in Ask for More that I use for myself personally. And I'll tell you about those two. Ooh, some behind the scenes. Some behind the scenes. Yep. So for in Ask for More, uh, so for your readers to know, there are 10 questions. Five of them are what I call the mirror. And those are questions. That's that internal game. And the last question in the mirror section is, what's my first step? And I often find that when it comes to life, we're, we want to try to solve something in one go. You know, yeah. we think we got to do it all today. And what I found is that that can lead me to overwhelm, especially when I'm working on big goals. You know, you can't write a book in a day, right? Mm -hmm. But you can say to yourself, you can sit down open up the laptop and say, what's one idea I'm thinking about today? What's one thing that's on my mind? Or, you know, if you're promoting a book or looking for speaking or whatever it is, who's somebody I can reach out to today? What's one mm -hmm. phone call I can make? And I find that in difficult times, if I wake up and stuff is rough and the last couple of years have been really hard teaching yeah. during a pandemic, having a parent in hospice for all of that time, most of that time. Some days I would wake up and like you, you know, my brain or body would be heavy. And I would say one thing, Alex, what's one thing you could do to bring yourself some relief or to move forward? And that is a pivotal question for me. So that's in Ask for More. What There's a question that's not in Ask for More, but 
but that I ask myself for my own psychology. And the question is, what are you proud of today? Mm. And the reason I do that is because, like I mentioned, getting personal, I tend toward the pessimistic when it comes to myself, and I tend to be really pathologically hard on myself. And so I find that getting into a state where I can say, here's where I'm proud of today, and full disclosure, Mark, okay, do you want to know what I was proud of the other day? I was proud. My family's away this week. I remembered to put out the trash and recycling. No joke. Okay. Yes, damn I'm, straight. <laughs> I'm not so I'm not so great at those everyday details. A lot of times people help me with that. But the truck was outside and I thought I can make it. And I ran up the driveway <laughs> and I hauled all the garbage cans and then everything was out of my garage. And I was like, damn, I did that. Right. Yes. So some days it's truly about doing something even if it's small, that makes you feel proud. And when I give that to myself, when I'm operating from a place of, you're doing great, Alex, like you're making yourself proud. You don't need to make anybody else proud. You're making yourself proud today. It puts so much gas in my tank to go out and show up for other people and take risks and go on to the next thing. I love it. I love it all. I love the question. I love the example. And I, that's that's an actually it's actually a quite a an important distinction with with gratitude type questions because if what I see often in this work is what am I grateful for my family my health my home you know my safety the, like the big things obviously mm-hmm. and that comes up over and over again which is obviously very important but what happens then usually at least from from my experience it starts to become less powerful because it just it becomes re- repetitive. So the more you can tap into these smaller moments, right? Of yeah, I, I nailed it. I got the trash <laughs> out. It's awesome, right? This this worked. Or uh, you know, I conquered that one thing on my on my list. That the thing that starts to happen as well, we start looking for more of those smaller micro moments of gratitude. And just by doing that, you're I mean, you're rewiring your mind to to see more of those moments and be more appreciative. And to your point, gives you more gas in the tank. And um, I think it's Tony Robbins that always says this, like, you can't be grateful and fearful at the same time. It's it's hard to be in those two, two states of mind at that in the same moment. So it's powerful stuff. So thank you for sharing the garbage example. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad. I got to tell you, it might be my proudest accomplishment this week. I'm still riding off the fumes of that. That's hilarious. Well, let's let it live on in podcast world. <laughs> Last question for you. What makes you smile each day? Oh, gosh. You know, and this is going to be one of these big life type things. But honestly, these days, it's my daughter. I have learned such profound things from her. And I, I can't help but share this with you because I'm, I'm so proud at this moment. So my daughter was born with a physical disability. She had something really rare happen to her when I was pregnant. Her right femur fractured in utero, which normally means that you have a very serious bone disease and you're not going to make it, like you're going to die in delivery. And it turned out that this was some freak thing where I had no trauma when I was pregnant at all. It just happened in her bone. 
So long story short, she was born with a leg that was a little bit shorter than the other. And that difference has grown over time um, to the point where now she has almost a two inch difference between her leg lengths. Wow. But here's the amazing thing, Mark. A few years ago, we decided to put her in the pool and see if she liked swimming. And when I tell you, she is a genius at like basically the one sport you can do horizontally. She's an incredible swimmer. Mm -hmm. And she focuses on the small things. You know, like if a race didn't go well, I'd ask her about it and she'd be like, my dive got a lot better today, mom. And watching my daughter with such a growth mindset every day, enjoying the small things, finding joy in this thing that she's good at, even in the face of a disability, brings me so much joy and happiness myself. I'm like, who's teaching who? Because you Mm -hmm. are giving mom a masterclass this year in finding the joy in the everyday. I mean, I, I mean, I've got tears in my eyes as a, as a parent myself. So I, every, it really hits home and it's just a, such a beautiful way to end our conversation. So here's, here's to your stunning daughter and, you know, her impact on you and the impact that you're bringing to this world through your work and you showing up with your incredible energy. It was such a delight to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Let's continue the conversation. Absolutely.